But I think if you can arm caregivers with these are your rights, and based on what the rights are, this is what you can expect because you are human. It doesn't matter. You can be white, black. These are your rights, and this is your loved one's right. They are human, mm-hmm. and you don't have to accept it and speak out because at the end of the day, you hold the power. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. Today's episode is brought to you by Aeroflow Urology. As a caregiver, do you struggle knowing how to even start getting your loved one qualified for urology products? Aeroflow Urology can help. Visit aeroflowurology.com slash agewise or call 888-446-2177. Tamisha Keel is the CEO of Opportunities, an international coaching and consulting firm. As a coach, consultant, motivational speaker, and trainer, Tamisha serves as an empowering resource for individuals and organizations. And she brings to her work a keen awareness of the challenges people face in caring for a loved one while working a full-time job. That awareness comes from Tamisha's personal experience of becoming her mother's sole caregiver in March 2012 after her father died. Because of a previous health complication, her mother was unable to live alone, so she relocated from her home to live with Tamisha. Tamisha Keel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us um, a little bit about where you grew up and what your family life was like. Um, well, I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. And for all of you New Yorkers out there, it's the first part of our city on Linden Boulevard. Um, mm-hmm. My parents, you know, they were from the South. My dad's from North Carolina. My mother's from South Carolina. So they met in the Big Apple. And so I have a younger sister and I have other siblings, older siblings as well. But um, it was the four of us. So we had a great childhood growing up in, in Brooklyn. My dad was a hard worker. My mother, which was so great. She basically, once she started having children, she stayed at home. So she was a stay-at-home mom for a while until we were old enough to um, go to school at junior high school and middle school, and then she decided to return to the workforce. But that was probably the greatest part. I think particularly some of my memories, I remember um, my dad was a cement mason, so he worked a lot and he worked hard and he had other businesses. And so she was always there with us, you know, going to school conferences, um, assisting us with our projects and, you know, we need be my dad would take off, but she was our our head cheerleader, mm-hmm. my sister and I. And so just kind of really being there for us. So, yeah, just a happy, a really happy childhood. We would visit, you know, relatives during the summer and the break. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what so what sort of law uh, did you start practicing and how, how did that uh, unfold? So basically, um, my first job out of law school, I was actually selected with the Department of Justice Honors Program for their new attorneys. And there's various um, divisions with the Department of Justice, but I was served as a judicial law clerk with the Immigration Court. Mm -hmm. And so in that capacity, I assisted probably close to 30 immigration judges throughout Florida and Puerto Rico with their immigration cases. And I had clerked or spent a summer... um, as summer intern under the honors program as well. So it was a great experience in the sense of just as a Native um, American being seeing what it's like because mm-hmm. America is a nation of immigrants and just seeing what that process is like and assisting the judges in making fair decisions under the Immigration and Nationality Act. So it was a nice um, bird's eye view and I was always interested in civil rights and mm-hmm. the like. So it was a great opportunity just to kind of see the law from a judge's vantage point. Yeah. So that, I did that for a couple of years. Um, I also clerked with a federal district court judge down in um, Florida. 
mm-hmm. as well. And that's why I took the, well, the New York bar originally from there, Florida. I ended up in Florida. And then also for a while I was assisting um, legal professionals, lawyers, as well as law students in career development, just kind of helping them decide what they wanted to do and to prepare the new future leaders of the legal profession. So in various aspects, I worked with higher education, um, institutions, law schools, just kind of assist with um, career development, professional development, coaching, counseling, um, and the like. And so I did that for pretty much almost a decade in higher education. Mm-hmm. And then i that's kind of where the business was birth. So I'm a professional coach. And so being able to understand just kind of dynamics, coaching, different areas, that's actually where the, the push came. It was a natural niche. Mm-hmm. Are you living in Florida now? No, actually, right oh, now okay. I'm in the metropolitan D.C. area. I'm assisting a local immigration nonprofit with their um, uh, continuing legal education credits, still in the professional development vein for immigration attorneys and kind of assisting them with their education and resources department. So tell me about how things unfolded after your father died and how was that for you uh, with your family? So just kind of a little bit of a background. My Mm -hmm. father was about 18 years older than my mother. Mm -hmm. And so interestingly enough, even though he was much older, like I think she was 21 when they met and he was 39, he always had a young spirit. And of course, having a younger wife and children keeps you on your toes, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So he was always a very strong person. And so my mother very early on, maybe when she was 50, um, she had a, a massive brain hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. And so it was at that point that I realized mortality and how as a child you're looking up to your parents, you don't expect anything ever bad to happen mm-hmm. to them. And I think seeing from that point on, thank God she made a full recovery, which is some things with memory loss and life, but it was a hard road. And so he became her caregiver. And it's interesting because I saw more of his character at that point hmm. because, as I discussed a little bit earlier, he was always a hard worker working. If, you know, he didn't work his regular um, job as a senior at Mason. He had a business, like he had clubs, and he would do that on the weekends to provide for the family. So when he was home, he was silent and he was present, but it was more he was like the silent father figure. Mm-hmm. And it was really after she had that hemorrhage that I saw him as a caregiver as her loving husband and Hmm. his devotion and character because he took that role. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I had just completed my first year of law school and my younger sister, she was in college and we would say, okay, daddy, do this. And, you know, he would actually visit her in the hospital um, when she was ICU, like Mm -hmm. day in, it was probably like a two hour round trip, but he did it faithfully every day. Mm -hmm. When she came home after three months, you know, making the adjustments to the home that they built, they really cared. So it really, it's one thing to say, okay, yes, he's a husband, he should do that. But Mm -hmm. you and I both know the dedication, the commitment, it's not there Mm -hmm. in a lot of cases that it used to be. And so I really saw him and for his strength. And so fast forwarding, he was about maybe in his late 70s when he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And we as a family, we were a tight knit group, the four of us. And so he pulled through that. And and even then I started seeing more of his mortality because at that point he was late 70s, 80s. And so I started noticing some things with him, like he was forgetting a little bit, even though he was very, very sharp, very active. But as he fell ill, he passed away from a diabetic, being a diabetic coma, pneumonia, complications from it. You don't think about it, but it just makes it that more apparent. So mm-hmm. after he passed, it was this huge loss For so many different reasons, because he was my mother's caregiver for 30, you know, they were together for about 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. Um, He was doing most of the caregiving with her. And so it was this huge gap that needed to be filled. And at that point, even though I was a long distance caregiver with him, his illnesses previously never came to the point where he wasn't able to take care of himself. It was mm-hmm. just as he got older, you know, he'll pull through it, you know, and we'll bounce back and give him the necessary assistance. Um, and so when he passed, suddenly I was thrust into the role of a full-time caregiver. My younger sister, she took care of my mom for about three weeks. 
And basically, I took over from there because I knew in Florida, definitely it was very senior citizen friendly mm-hmm. um, in terms of the resources available. So I worked full time at that point. She really needed an adult daycare center. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to get the necessary resources that I need and hire individuals to help while I work because not only did my father provide the companionship and the caregiving, he was her prime financial support mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. once she had the hemorrhage, she was unable to work. And so with that, it was basically kind of reverse parenting in the sense here you have an adult child very much into my career, excited, but then I'm having to take care of my parents. And so looking back on it, I would do it again in a heartbeat, so it's nothing that I'm regarding, but it was tough Mm -hmm. um, because during that time, my mother was diagnosed preliminarily with moderate Alzheimer's. And Mm -hmm. so with the hemorrhage um, and Alzheimer's, uh, it was like, what in the world? Because she, she started mm-hmm. having dementia symptoms of mm-hmm. Alzheimer's. She was sundowning and mm-hmm. she was never sleeping. And I could not understand what was going on. And so looking back at it now, I can only empathize with what my father went through because unfortunately he was older, taking care of himself, taking care of her. You know, he didn't have the resources to go to like neurologists and, mm-hmm. and being able to get certain diagnoses because it was a full time job. And so after that diagnosis, she was prescribed medications, which assisted a lot. It, it was great, you know, even though I was the caregiver and helping her and, and we're doing things together. That was great. Mm-hmm. And because at first, you know, the issues that I was seeing and the behaviors I was seeing that was being t- taken care of. So it, it made the burden a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. And so that's the first year. But after the first year and everything was relatively stable, she says to me, Tanisha, I feel alone. And so I affectionately call my mother Spanky because she's always, she's like the life of the party. I mean, everything. <laughs> um, and so I was, I was like, what do you mean? Because, you know, as a caregiver, we're shopping together. I'm assisting her um, with various things. And I, I would see her and help her bathe and everything. And so I felt it. And so I said, don't worry, you know, we we this is going to be okay. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to go to the doctor and have those mammograms because she hadn't had a mammogram in years because, of course, my dad was taking care of her. And you don't think. You just think going to the regular doctor, right. that's okay. Right. And so we went to have her mammogram. The doctor further went to have a biopsy of what he was seeing because it was suspicious. And about almost a year later, he, she was diagnosed with either stage three or stage four breast cancer. Mm. And so I can't even, words can't even express how how I felt other than it felt like, oh, my goodness, not another, like a tsunami effect right. in the sense of, mm-hmm. you know, here's one issue, okay, we're getting through that issue. Another issue, okay, we're getting through that issue. And then mm-hmm. this, you're like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? right. And so still working, still caregiving for her going through the process, she took treatments and chemotherapy and going through that process with her where, you know, I had to hire assistance and attendance for her because she could no longer go to the daycare. And it, it was a really trying time. Um, it, was a, it was a horrible time mm-hmm. um, because cancer and Alzheimer's is devastating diseases. However, I think in the midst of it, even looking back myself, she had the sweetest disposition. Uh And she never complained. She never, she was just enjoyed life. Uh And so, um, let me just take a moment. It's just seeing her strength made Uh me stronger. You know, I couldn't cry in front of her. And Uh I, you know, always wanted us to enjoy the present. Uh And I I can't even, out of such a terrible situation, there were the sweetest moments. Mm -hmm. And that's what I cherish. I cherish her strength. I cherish just those moments. Mm -hmm. And just kind of thinking back when she took care of my sister and I, and she was just so selfless. Mm -hmm. Um, I could not. Um, turn my back on her and her time of need. So, mm-hmm. so you went through a lot in a very short period of time. 
Yes, actually, she did pass. It's oh. been, oh my goodness, time flies. She mm. passed June of 2014. Oh so it was my father had passed two and a half years earlier, and then subsequently two years, two, like another two and a half years, she had passed. Oh, wow. That is really tough. I'm so sorry. It's so wonderful, though, that you were there to, with her. You were there for her. And of course, you would be. It just sounds like you had an amazing relationship with both of your parents. Yes. Um, and like I said, it wasn't it wasn't easy because particularly for those out there who have loved ones with Alzheimer's. I mean, I call her spanky affectionately. She was a handful. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, very strong will, very determined. You know, she's sundowning, not sleeping all night. And you know, there were some times where she was combative. Um, yeah. Until, you know, the neurologist said, okay, this is probably, well, her mother had Alzheimer's, if I remember correctly. And so the brain hemorrhage probably exasperated that because there was memory loss. And so once we had that, it it was the explanation of, okay, now I understand those behaviors such as sundowning and such as like doing things all night long and being combative. It made sense. And so Mm -hmm. once that was under key, because I don't want to paint this rosy picture at all that caregiving is easy. As you and I both know and others out there know, it isn't. But I think particularly what I was alluding to with the cancer diagnosis and going through the process, it was such a nasty process and mm-hmm. she was she was overly sweet and pleasant. And I think it makes the realization because when you're looking at your life and looking at what matters, it's unfortunate, but you it's almost as if enjoying yourself and being able to enjoy life was of the utmost importance as you're you're reflecting over your life and spending with loved ones. She was witty, she laughed, she smiled. We had the most interesting conversations, what I'd miss because she she and my dad were both witty individuals and nuggets of wisdom that I miss. And so out of something so ugly, it was, I'm glad that the relationship was stronger, if that made sense, because, you know, I hear stories where individuals who are sick, they're very cantankerous mm-hmm. and very bitter, and, and that's understandable, but I, that wasn't the case. With Fortunately, it was a great relationship, but unfortunately, yes, she passed. And how old was she? Fairly young. So when she passed, she would have been 67. 67. Just a couple of months Mm-hmm, yeah, just four months before her. So she was living to, with me up until the point where um, I had a town home upstairs and downstairs. So up until the point where she was in a nurse, we had to put her in a nursing home because it was in out of hospital, particularly with the treatments and with the cancer. Mm-hmm. And my home, mm-hmm. uh, because my desire for her, I wanted her to be in a loving environment. And not mm-hmm. to say hospitals aren't, but it's different being in a hospital versus a home. Mm-hmm. And so when it got to the point where she couldn't go upstairs to her bedroom or, you know, I didn't have the necessary equipment needing in my home, then I turned to um, the, a nursing home and the hospital because the hospital at that point was talking about hospice. And I was like, no, no, we're not doing hospice. And the nursing home um, actually, because she was doing some um, physical therapy because after a hospital stint, you could do physical therapy. Mm-hmm. So she actually passed in a nursing home. Okay. And what was your sister's involvement, if any? So my sister, as I stated earlier, she actually took care of her about three weeks um, mm-hmm. because my sister lived in North Carolina. Um, she would actually, when she, my, when my mother moved to Florida with me, my sister actually spoke with her, you know, corresponded and spoke with her over the phone. And she came to visit her and donated like a little bit in terms of different things. I'd let her know what she needed. So mm-hmm. that was the extent of my sister involvement with my mother. And then in terms up with my dad because she lived in North Carolina and I was in Florida, it was probably a little bit more because they were like two hours away from both from my parents and my sister. Mm-hmm. Was that hard for you to be doing um, a lot of the work there? I mean, you were working a full-time job and you had resources, but it's tough. Yeah, it was 
tough because I was responsible for everything. So I had the regular, the requisite power of attorneys and everything. And it would have been nice to have closer family. So my mother's family did assist. I was able to, you know, get breaks when I would bring her up um, to visit her family and we would travel. So I love that because it was the opportunity for her to be with family. It was the opportunity to have respite mm-hmm. and it was the opportunity for her to be in an environment where she, you know she loved and so being kind of ancillary by herself hundreds of miles away it's tough and then you have to rely more so on strangers and so I've been fortunate and you know I, I consider all my mother's aides and the individuals who assist me I mean they're like brothers and sisters to me mm-hmm. um, because it, it was just a tremendous just kind of being able to step in and being able to you know assist where I was needed because during the day I had to work and I had to make money for her you mm-hmm. know when you're, you would think about the cancer treatments without oh, Insurance. It was probably what fifty thousand a month, and then you oh, have the wow. Medigap because right. she was so young, she mm-hmm. didn't have insurance. She was probably on my dad's insurance, and mm-hmm. she didn't qualify for Medicare. They didn't know to apply for disability, uh-huh. uh, for instance. So basically, he was working after he retired at like seventy or eighty to make sure they had enough money for insurance and medical visits, and then I would chip in. Mm-hmm. So it just became that much more apparent because yes, um, even with Medicare, there's a twenty percent Medigap hole. Mm-hmm. So we had to pay for the supplement insurance policy for that. So it's tremendously expensive. For Medicare, you have to be 65, 65 right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And she didn't have disability beforehand. So before she qualified and my father had passed, basically I was actually making making up the gap. So we both know that it's a full-time job when you're a caregiver because mm-hmm. even when your loved one is being cared for by somebody else, you're never really off-duty. So so how did you, I know that you had help, so you had resources that helped you to sort Mm -hmm. of juggle. What was was some of the tough things for you while you were working? I think for me at that point, the work was a reprieve because it gave me the opportunity to think of something else. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. But when my mother slept or, you know, the caregivers were with her, I was basically trying to fill in the gaps, like, okay, like, what does she need? How can we get this resource? When is her next doctor's appointment? Planning those. And so you're right, it was a 24-7 job because even when I had a break, it was attending to, okay, when is her next doctor's appointment? Okay, with her special health needs dietary restrictions. Let's see how we can get that. So a lot of times it was coming up with strategies and I'm not going to lie, like it was our faith in God um, Mm -hmm. and prayer and meditating Mm -hmm. just to kind of get us through the process. But my job, I was always researching different things with their treatment, always um, corresponding with the doctors. And I had come to a point, how can I outsource this? Say where I, in the beginning, was cooking more. Okay, how can I get nutritious, healthy meals that were nutrient-dense delivered so that she can do this? Or have maybe the caregivers pick that up for me. Because so much of my time was, I hate to say strategizing, because it makes it seem as if it's purely administrative, Mm -hmm. but utilizing the time that I had to get further along the process to assist her. Looking back on it, I'm just like, I can't even explain how I was able to do it. Mm-hmm. My mother's relatives, her sisters were caregivers for her mother. So they would give me nice strategies and tips that you don't even think about until you go through the process. And so that was helpful. And so I think being able to see how much of the work that I can delegate to someone else so I can be able to do the higher level strategy sessions, such as speaking with a specialist, making sure that her treatments are going according to plan and spending time with her. Because I think in a lot of caregiving, caregivers are so consumed with the day-to-day moment by moment, and it's tough and it's hard. And I was fortunate and blessed to have the resources, but if you don't, you can become very bitter and angry. And and I think my number one goal was how can I make my mother's life 
as enjoyable as I possibly could. And my aunts and family would say, hey, how can you keep yourself sane and healthy so you'll be able to do that? And so to me, it was coming up with those strategies that can save me time and resources to be able to do the things that needed to be done, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We did travel a lot. So because with work, I took my mother everywhere. It was only until she had that last year when her treatment, probably like the last month, where she couldn't travel. But she and I traveled anywhere. It was fun and exciting. So whereas I was working, I would often hire a caregiver because she couldn't be alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think her last trip that we took was the Dream Foundation, her trip to New Orleans. Oh. Because she loved shrimp. And so mm-hmm. that was the last trip. But that was, even though I had caregivers, it was it was bad. It was real because she was getting sicker and sicker. Tell us about the Dream Foundation uh, excursion. Tell us more about how that came about. Sure. Well, I love, this is a shameless plug. They're not paying me anything, but I, I love <laughs> the Dream Foundation. But basically, it's an organization that makes dreams happen for individuals who are terminally ill. Mm-hmm. So my mother and I had traveled, and I was like, well, you know, let's see if we can plan a trip somewhere that would be relatively easy. So Mm -hmm. she picked New Orleans, and Mm -hmm. she loved shrimp, and she loved crawfish. She never had crawfish, but she loved shrimp. So she's like, okay, I want to go to New Orleans because I heard the food was good, and it's spicy, and she loves spicy food. Uh (laughs) So the Dream Foundation actually, um, through their sponsors and partners, they, and I still have this record, the video recording, they basically surprised her. Um, And so they had a trip, subsidized the hotel, they gave some money towards it, and I made up the difference, of course. But yeah, it was great, and she actually had a chance to experience crawfish, so Mm -hmm. she was so excited. We'll be back after this message. Support for the AgeWise podcast comes from Aeroflow Urology. Are you spending too much time struggling with insurance companies and doctors to get products for your parent, grandparent, or loved one? Aeroflow Urology helps caregivers like you enjoy more and worry less by helping qualify your loved one for incontinence products through insurance. Aeroflow's assigned continence care specialist works directly with the physician, provider, and patient to ensure your loved one finds the best products suited for their unique needs. To start the conversation, visit aeroflowurology.com slash agewise or call 888-446-2177. Yeah, we spent a couple of days. She loved beads, so even though it was during Mardi Gras season, she collected tons of beads. She was like the beads lady, so she loved that. <laughs> Did you have um, beignets? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we went to Demons, uh-huh. I think. We had uh-huh. beignets. You know, just kind of eat because she loved to eat, and uh-huh. I loved to see her eat. But it was difficult because at that point, she was wheelchair-bound. Before, when she was traveling, she was able to walk. But basically, I was, like, trying to help her, like, if she fell, you know, breaking her fall and getting um, gentlemen to help me with her. Mm-hmm. So at that point, she was in a wheelchair. So being able to maneuver the streets of New Orleans, you know, safely, and it was a lot of planning. Oh, yeah, I'm, a lot I'm of planning. sure. Yeah. So you were the only one with her? Yes. Yeah, so unfortunately, my sister couldn't make it at that point. That's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. it was it was she would get weak and I could not lift her so there were always wonderful uh, passerbyers Mm -hmm. men that would help with her just to kind of keep her up I was pretty much trying to figure out okay how can I get assistance with this and hire Mm -hmm. someone to kind of drive us around Mm -hmm. because she was unable to to walk around I remember she'd gotten really sick in the hotel. Mm. And so without being graphic, I had to call the hotel and say, oh, please, you know, help me. And the housekeepers, they were amazing. They were like, don't worry about it. But it was just those types of things that I wanted to scream. But here my mother was going through it. And she always had a a great disposition. But Mm -hmm. it was was really, really bad. But in the midst of it, it was just a beautiful experience in terms of the pictures Mm -hmm. um, that we have in the moment. Did you have any breakdowns yourself? (sighs) 
That's a good question. I'm sure I had. Well, yeah, I'm just chuckling now. I remember before she had the, she was taking Alzheimer's medications, I think it was Namenda. Mm-hmm. And she was up all night, all night up, just making a rocket. And I was like, I had enough, I had enough. And now I'm ashamed of it, but it was like so comical because, you know, she was sundowning. And I know uh-huh. previously when she was with my sister, she'd actually wandered out of the house. Oh, wow. Um, and they were looking for her, but thank God, you know, they found her. So she'd uh-huh. had glaucoma surgery uh-huh. or cataract surgery. Uh-huh. And the doctor said, you know, be very still. Don't do anything because you can risk blindness. And everything the doctor told her not to do, she did. And <laughs> I was just, you know, fearful for her safety. And I was like, I've had enough. If you don't do it, you know, let her come to the cops. And she's like, call the cops. So I call the cops. And the cops come in, right? It's like 10, 20 police cars. So they're expecting like a showdown, you know, some oh major. So she's like scurrying about, like hiding from the cops. And I said, you know, I apologize, but I was like, I can't do anything with her. Like, she's not listening to me. She just had the surgery on her eye. I'm afraid. And if something happens, I don't want to be the cause. So they're looking at her like this little old lady. Well, little like mom (laughs) with this attitude. And she says, she says, oh, I think Tanisha's just overreacting. And they were like, they're looking, of course, to make sure the house is safe. And they said, look here, you need to listen to your daughter because she cares for you. Now, if we take you and you come with us, you will not be living as a place as nice as this. Do you understand? So go to bed and be, you know, be nice. This Uh is only for your good. Afterwards, it kind of shook her up a little bit. So Uh she's like sweet. And then they left. Uh And then she raises pain after they leave. Like, so I was like, ah! (laughs) <laughs> so this was like all night one of the you know sundowning episodes where she was just like she was a little tiger she was like on and on so yes i, I can remember having those moments like i can't take it anymore yes <laughs> i think that was like my bell cow before she she received the necessary medication just to kind of calm her down but um i think when she was diagnosed with cancer, I don't remember as much because, like all caregivers, you're angry, you're like, I can't take this anymore. But when it becomes life-threatening, and it's not to say that the Alzheimer's isn't life-threatening, that's not what I'm saying, but I think because when you get such a diagnosis, I would cry on my own. Like, I would never, there was a time that she got sick from the treatment. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, after I helped her and, and with that, I went and cried on my own. I would never let her see me breaking down or, or being sad because I didn't want her to be sad during that point. So I think if I did, it was more silent and definitely, you know, talking to others and, and being able to express myself and, and really kind of venting to others was important. What did you do for yourself? Oh my goodness. Some of the things I did for myself that was really helpful. So during the times that I wasn't with her, I would always check in spa treatments. Mm-hmm. And that was amazing because it just kind of gave me an opportunity just to kind of not do anything and just be present in that moment and mm-hmm. kind of get my thoughts together or just not to think of anything. Um, so that was the biggest thing I did for myself, mm-hmm. spa treatments and mm-hmm. massages and mm-hmm. being able to, for a moment, just lay on that table and just let someone take care of me. Also, during this time, I was being a therapist and it was important to be able to vent. And I think it was my therapist. I loved her. When I was trying to be the superwoman, like, oh, yes, you know, I can bring the hospital bed in. And this is what we need to bring into, you know, to my home. The therapist was like, no. I think hearing that voice of reason, being able to say, you can't do this. And I think when you have someone outside looking in and being able to talk about what's going on and they say, okay, you're going to, you know, hope for the best, but this is serious. I remember telling the therapist, we came from New Orleans, this is what's happening. She was like, she needs to go to the hospital. And in my mind, I was like, what do you mean? She was mm-hmm. like, take her to the hospital. And I remember she was like, you can't turn your house into a hospital. Like, she needs to be to the hospital. 
And part of me resented that because I'm like, I can do it. We're going to be okay. But I think it was during that stint. Uh, I took my mother to the hospital. They admitted her. Her pulse was dropping. It was like 20, 50 over 20. Mm-hmm. This was after um, New Orleans? Yes. And they were like, oh, wow. It's and scary. I'm just like, wow. You know, so I think that was helpful, being able to have someone who I can talk to because you don't want to overburn your family. Everyone has their issues. But having that neutral bystander mm-hmm. during this process and just be able to say, okay, Tamisha, you've done a lot and you've done a great job. Even though I was like, oh, my goodness, I wish I did this and I wish I did this. But having someone to be able to say, okay, it's time. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. even briefly before I moved from Florida after my mother's passing, we were talking about, okay, I, I think the therapist like preparing you, mm-hmm. preparing me in terms of what's going to happen, and which I'm grateful for. So I think those are probably two of the things I did for myself that I'm glad I did. Talking to another professional and kind of having that accountability and check in, and then also being able to have a massage or go out or just kind of take moments for myself where I need to do something for me so I can be able to, you know, help my mother and care for her. And how did your employer react to all of this? You know what? It's interesting because I was still working at the same place when my father was having health issues. So very, very amazing in the sense having the ability to have time off and being flexible to be able to work from home. So the employer was very good about that and understanding. And if I needed leave, being able to take the time and being there. So I'm I'm grateful for that. I had enough seniority at work to be able to be flexible with the opportunities. It's good that you had that flexibility, but you had to take some time off. And there are limitations to the Family and Medical Leave Act. So what, yes, do, you, yes, what so- do you wish you would have had that you didn't have? And what do we need more of? I think probably what caregivers need more of is employer flexibility because it surveys and data that shows kind of the attrition rates and just how much caregiving not only affects the individuals, but then also to the employers. And I think being flexible, teleworking. So even if I didn't have the requisite time off, being able to work in the hospital mm-hmm. with my parents when I was there and being mm-hmm. able to schedule meetings remotely, of course. And so I think more of that is needed. Definitely having some sort of, I don't want to say training, that's the wrong word, but benefits, for instance, at each of my employers, they would have long-term insurance benefits for, of course, the employee independence. But technically speaking, the parents wouldn't be the dependent. So mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of benefits that can kind of flow, especially before my mother qualified for Medicare, that I can assist her with. So kind of thinking out of side of the box in terms of not only the flexible schedules and being able to telecommute and telework from home, but also to planning because so many individuals are taking care of adult loved ones. And so when you start your new job, that's not the first thing you talk about, but just having some sort of resource where maybe there are gerontologists that can talk about that and kind of start thinking what options are there, what are some needs, because I think On my own, I was doing a lot of that research, Mm -hmm. and I think it would have been great to have that as an employer benefit because Mm -hmm. long-term care insurance wasn't an option because my parents weren't my dependents, even though Mm -hmm. they technically were. Yeah, Um, Yeah. how ironic, right? um, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, they were. And then just to kind of have a resource for employees when they're going through, whether it's parents or even spouses and partners, Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of that, that's what I was doing. And then the Family Medical Leave Act, you know, that's unpaid. Your job is guaranteed essentially for three months, but unpaid. Mm -hmm. Something with that in terms of expanding a little bit or just having paid leave, definitely. I was fortunate, like I said, I had the time, but I know with my aunt, she had to quit her job totally 
to take care of my grandmother, my mother's mother. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people, that's not an option. You wrote a piece for the Huffington Post and you cited some statistics from the AARP's caregiving in the U.S. report from Mm -hmm. 2015. You noted the prevalence of caregiving among Hispanics is 21% or 7.6 million. Among African Americans, it's 20.3% or 5.6 million. And among Asian Americans, it's 19.7% or 2.7 million. As an African-American, did you have certain concerns that proved to be valid? For instance, going into the hospital, did you experience racial stereotyping? And uh, and I know you don't represent all of the African-American community, but tell us what concerns you had that proved to be valid or not. You know what is, that's an interesting dynamic. It was interesting to note the demographics that I cited mm-hmm. based on the AARP report, because traditionally, minorities and caregiving, it's almost unstated. So I remember even when my parents were younger and we would visit nursing homes, they were like, oh, no, we don't do nursing homes. And Mm -hmm. it was almost as if it's almost unstated rule that you take care of your own, Mm -hmm. especially as a minority. So Mm -hmm. that was one of the things that was very prevalent with me. And I noticed even talking to other relatives, if you had to put a loved one in the care, in the home, you better be there like 24-7. You might as well be the caregiver because a lot of times the elderly, regardless of what race, you have to know and do the research. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that I would do is like if my parents ever came to the nursing home, where would I want them to be closer to home in the Mm -hmm. sense of, you know, the credentialing, the ratio from nurses to CNAs to Mm -hmm. doctors, accessibility. So that's, that's a huge issue. But even then, and I can't, I don't want to say the black community, but I know particularly in my family, it was bad if you sent your parents to nursing home, but mm-hmm. it was more acceptable if you were Caucasian, because mm-hmm. that's what a lot of Caucasians do, so to speak. Not, I can't speak generally, but just kind of things you hear. So I'm a lawyer by trade. Right. And being an African-American woman who was young at that point, mm-hmm. I was probably 35 or 36 mm-hmm. and looking relatively young. And so your expectation is when I am interacting with medical professionals, they probably say, oh, yeah, this is a daughter. We can see, you know, or even my sister, because she was like three years younger than I. You know, these are sort of daughters we can kind of see. But I don't think they expect expected me to be a lawyer. And not only that, I don't think they expected me to be as involved and concerned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when I'm interacting with all of the specialists and all the doctors and the social workers, they can say, wait a minute mm-hmm. here. You know, they're, you know, they're, you're not just, and I don't want to say it try like you're not just anyone because everyone's somebody, but they knew by the way I just had my discussions that I did this research and this is what's available. And so I think that maybe it was probably surprising, but I think there was a recognition that, okay, Tamisha knows this. And if there were any stereotypes, those stereotypes were quickly vanished Mm -hmm. because they knew that they could not interact with me at a superficial level Mm -hmm. because this is my mother. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And not only is she my mother, but you're not going to treat her or I as if we're less than because at the end of the day, we're paying you, whether it's through insurance or what, like, And so there was a certain sort of respect and accountability. So I think a lot of times that probably got on their nerves (laughs) because Uh I was at every appointment. I was there every day talking to doctors, talking to nurses, getting a report, asking them questions. And so they knew, I think it was one, I think maybe it was an instance I said, um, yeah, this is my mother in a nursing home. And maybe she hadn't been bathed at that point. And I said, why has she been bathed? It's like three, four o'clock. When they saw me the next day, she was bathed. So mm-hmm. they knew that they can expect someone who cared about their parents and cared about the service that they had. And if not, I would tell you there was going to be an issue. So mm-hmm. I think it is interesting, but I think it goes to underscore how caregivers and minority caregivers being equipped because I knew being a lawyer, being able to research, being able to know what's up, you can't tell me anything. 
even if there was racism or they may say, okay, who does she think he is? Yes, this is what I think. You're not going to do it. Right. <laughs> You're not going to do it. And being on top of things, if something was done, I expect it to be done and there's going to be an accounting. And I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I feel that to say, yes, I have heard stories from family members and the like who were looked down upon because they were African-American women or they were minorities, as if they were less than. And I think that's why it's so important to equip caregivers and minorities with the necessary tools because having family members who haven't gone to college or gone to graduate school and the like, yes, there is that sense of kind of maybe being perceived or maybe discriminatory practices. But I think if you can arm caregivers, minorities, or those who are impoverished with, these are your rights. Mm -hmm. And this is based on what the rights are. This is what you can expect because you are human. It doesn't matter. You can be white, black, but these are your rights. And this is your loved one's right. They are human. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to accept it and speak out Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, you hold the power. I think whenever there were instances where the practitioners thought that they can get away with something because, oh, she's young or she's black or she's mm-hmm. a woman, it wasn't what they thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, you're in, I think no matter what your cultural or racial background is, people don't challenge medical professionals to begin with, I think, a lot of us. Mm-hmm. We don't, mm-hmm. you know, we just take mm-hmm. it on faith that they know what they're talking about. And then you add to the mix when you're going into a, a room where you're interacting with a medical professional. You feel vulnerable, you're worried, you want to ask the right questions. Your first instinct isn't necessarily to challenge what you're being told. So it really is, I think you make a really good point about arming caregivers, all caregivers, really. But it's tough because a lot of people are just so devastated by what they're going through that it, no matter where you come from, you're making it up as you go along. Right. It's tough. No, and that's and that's a, a valid point. I think particularly as a coach, like going through my experience and coaching caregivers, arming them with that because it's very intimidating, but they have the right to ask questions mm-hmm. and getting second and third opinions. It's a vulnerable position, but you can take charge mm-hmm. in a respectful manner, but you don't have to just take anything that's said at face value just because. Mm-hmm. Have you had any sort of success stories with your coaching? Tell me how that's gone. It's interesting because I think particularly what a lot of caregivers need, that outlet and that individual to talk to and bounce mm-hmm. ideas off of. So mm-hmm. in those instances, just kind of providing that and being able to have the caregiver vet and the resources, just as we were talking just, just now, they don't know. And, I didn't know, but I think what's been helpful is being able to say, okay, have you looked into this or mm-hmm. maybe this? Mm-hmm. And it's just like seeing the lights that come on and mm-hmm. seeing, you know, nuggets of information. I've gone through this process just as my family members informally coach me. Here's some things you may want to think about and seeing them take that advice and use it and it has great results or, you know, ameliorate the situation a little Mm -hmm. bit. It's been tremendous. Mm -hmm. It is really important to be able to empower individuals and others. Let me ask you something. You know, after your mom died, uh, your dad was already gone. Your whole life has really changed since then. You're Mm -hmm. in a way you're kind of unburdened. And I mean that in the best sense, because it is difficult. How are you feeling these days you know, about your folks and what's behind you and where you're headed just in your life without them around? You know what? It's weird because this may be a weird way of saying this, but I try not to dwell too much on them not being here. So mm-hmm. I do miss them. I mm-hmm. miss them tremendously. And there be moments of, oh, my goodness, I wish they were here with me. But I try not to dwell on that. I don't want to say it's counterproductive. I think it's more productive to be able to share their legacy and empower others. Because I know even after my mother passed, when she had just passed, for two days, I was numb and didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And I just was on the couch. And I was thinking, how am I going to go on? Like, what do I do with myself? And so... 
at that moment, I remember getting up and getting a bite to eat and just kind of do, because I was like, I had no desire to do anything. And I think you never want to get to the point where you're paralyzed, to the point that you can't function. So grieving is a natural process, is an automatic process, but being able to channel the sadness or to channel their loss into positive ways and honor their legacy, that's what my focus is on. So now it's interesting. There is a burden lifted in the sense of, wow, what do I do with myself? <laughs> you know, <laughs> because it's so much like for the last, I'd say, four years, that was my life. So it's mm-hmm. kind of getting to know me before that happened. It's exciting, but I think a lot of it is just kind of like, wow. What, <laughs> you know, what? because when you caregive and then it's, you're just like, okay, who am I outside of the caregiver? Or what did I do before I was a caregiver? Right. So I think I'm in that, stage now, I mean, it's exciting because I, you know, I have a good sense of self, but it, it takes your moment to just kind of get your bearing. Yeah. And then just to kind of say, okay, this is the rhythm. This is what normal looks like uh-huh. because your normal was different for a while. And so I think I'm in that period now. I think for myself, I think being able to enjoy life and enjoy every moment is paramount. And I know it kind of sounds a little cliche or tried, but that's where I am now. It's the present and being more present as opposed to like futuristic or dwelling excessively in the past, planning for the future, but enjoying life in the present. But yeah, there are many times that, you know, I miss them. Oftentimes I'd find myself just crying for no reason. But I think, after that process, just being able to channel, because a lot of it was, there were very few times that I had that outlet, because you're just so busy doing, doing, doing. So I think in the grieving process, that's natural. But now as that starts to subside a little bit more, how can I redirect this energy to remember their legacies and the amazing wisdom that they've imparted and, and just kind of being able to live life and a purpose and you know just being involved with there's organizations that support cancer victims and caregiving those are just kind of a few of the projects that throwing my passions into Mm -hmm. being committed to to assisting others Mm -hmm. well are there any last thoughts you'd like to leave with the listeners before we go you know what i think probably the last thought just making every moment count it's not easy. I know you're, there may be some like, oh, that's easy for her to say. But just know there are resources out there. And as a caregiver, it's just an amazing opportunity for you to cherish and love your loved ones. So at the end, it's, it's always worth it. But in the midst of that, just being able to recognize that you're not alone and there's amazing resources out there for you to get the support that you need and also kind of empower yourself. My aunt told me, and I'll pass along, definitely take care of you first um, and being cognizant of that and making every moment with your loved one. Great. Tamisha Keel, she's the CEO of Opportunities, as well as a coach, consultant, motivational speaker, and trainer who's an empowering resource for individuals and organizations. Tamisha, thanks so much for being on the show. I loved chatting with you. Likewise. Thank you for having me. And that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the episode. You can email me at Jana at agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-I-Z or Z, as my Canadian mother says. You can also find me online at agewise.com and listen to this podcast and lots of other fresh ones on the Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand radio network that's always on for you. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. Until then... Age well, age wise.